So it was, it's uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, you may remember uh, an aspect of that terrible day. Um, President Bush that morning was in Florida. He was uh, going to appear at this grade school. He was pushing this uh, agenda, uh, education reform agenda. So the plan was he was going to go in with uh, to this group of second graders, and uh, they were going to read a book together. I think the kids were going to read to him, or he was going to read to them. I'm not quite sure, but it was going to be kind of a photo op kind of a thing. Um, right before he's ready to go out into the classroom, his uh, the president's people tell him that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. But they weren't, uh, they weren't particularly alarmed because they just presumed it was a small propeller plane and that it was a mistake. So they would just, he just said, you know, keep me updated. Um, so he goes out and he starts to talk to these kids. And within a couple of minutes, um, the president's chief of staff, Andy Card, comes out and he uh, whispers into the president's ear. And he tells him, uh, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. What's particularly incredible about this is um, it's all recorded. Like this was, this was happening in real time. Cameras were totally covering this event. So if you watch the video of it in particular, um, it's amazing to watch the president. He's being told this news. And then his reaction, it was kind of this combination, this sort of strange combination, I think of, it's like calm distraction, if that makes sense. Doesn't seem like if you were distracted by something, you'd be calm, but he, he seemed to be. He certainly tried to be. In fact, if you listen to the interviews with the president about that moment, he said uh, the way that the room was set up, you know, he's in front of the kids, and right behind the kids is the whole press corps. So his chief of staff has just told him, second plane crash, clearly not a mistake. And as he's telling, being told that, all the press corps, and now he can see that they're getting, their phones are lighting up. So they're getting calls being alerted to the same news. So now he's dealing with them getting, he knows they're gonna be pouncing on him for information. Anyway, he remained with these kids for seven more minutes. He didn't wanna panic. He didn't wanna startle the kids. He didn't wanna startle the nation. And very consciously, he said to himself in this moment, like, I'm just not going to abruptly get up and bolt from the room. And again, if you watch the video, it's worth checking it out. He just, he remains very calm. But if you watch his eyes, it's incredible. Like, he's, he's calm, but he's so not there. Like, these kids, this book he was reading, like, so done. He's so now thinking about what he's got on his hands. You know, I think what he projected in that moment was incredibly important. 
Like it couldn't be panic. And it wasn't, to his credit. It's important sometimes what we project. It's important sometimes what people see. I was talking to a a woman in the parish here right after, a couple of weeks ago, right after Thanksgiving, I saw her at the store and she asked me, you know, we asked how our Thanksgivings were and her father, her father died last January. So this was the first Thanksgiving without her father. She said it was just very tough. She told me she's missing him. She thinks she's missing him more now than she even was in the, in the weeks after his death. Like maybe it was just the, the prospect of the holidays coming. She said to me, I don't even really want to celebrate Christmas. As bad as Easter, as bad as Thanksgiving was, Christmas is going to be worse. But she said she's got a couple of little kids. She's got to celebrate Christmas. And they miss their grandfather, but they're kids, and it's Christmas. She doesn't want to celebrate it, but she knows she has to. It's kind of like the president. Sometimes we project one emotion when we're totally feeling another. Project calm when you're feeling distress. Project excitement when you're feeling sadness. I'm not saying we should always do that. I think there's something about that that's almost kind of not authentic, not accurate, but sometimes you gotta, right? You gotta, you sort of have to take one for the team. Today's the third Sunday of Advent. It's called Gaudete Sunday, which is a Latin word. It means rejoice. So we're supposed to kind of focus on just being joyful on this third Sunday. Very simple reason. It's getting close. We're getting close to Christmas. He's coming soon. So we, we should be getting excited. We should be joyful. Listen to what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I shall say it again, rejoice. I get it. It's like, be positive, right? Be hopeful. Be glasses half full as opposed to half empty. But you know what I always find a little tough with that line? The always part. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice always. I mean, how, do you, how can you always be joyful? He's telling us always be sort of happy. And he's not saying just project it the way that mom sort of will this Christmas. He's actually saying be it, like be joyful. How can you always be joyful? Sometimes we have stuff in life that doesn't lead to joy. You know what? This whole weekend, this third, this Gaudete Sunday thing, it's never very joyful for me. You know why? Because I have to wear this ridiculous pink thing up here. That's why. (laughs) This is crazy. 
people say, well, no, it's rose. It's rose. No, it's not rose. It's pink. I'm not rejoicing in that. How do you rejoice when you're lonely? How do you rejoice when you're sick? Or disappointed? Or sad? But how do you do that? How do you do it if you're not feeling it? And he's telling us, do it. Be joyful always. I think maybe it's this. If we live our lives grounded in Christ instead of the moment, if we live in Christ instead of the moment, then somehow somehow we're able to kind of be joyful, even when it seems like we shouldn't. It doesn't mean we, we take horrible things and make them positive. That's crazy. It just means we don't let the horrible things crush us. Because as big as the horrible thing is, there's, something, there's a bigger reality out there, and it's Jesus. And the more anchored we are in him, the more in relationship we are with him, I think we are then able to kind of do this always thing. I'm terrible at it. I'm not even close to getting there. But I think it's true. You know, tonight, you know, when you go home tonight, put on the news for a little bit. And take a look at the stories now in the South and in the Midwest, these tornadoes. Listen to some of the people that are being interviewed. People in wherever, Kentucky, wherever the, the worst of this happened. And you'll hear interviews with victims. People who've lost everything. Loss of life, loss of property. Total disaster. And they'll describe it. But then they'll also express hope. Not all. Maybe not even most. Maybe most will, they'll talk about the destruction and then you'll hear, hear, you'll hear despair in their voice. But not all of them. And I'll bet you, the ones who know Jesus, like I mean really are grounded in Christ, in the midst of this objective horror, there's still hope, maybe even joy. Look at this first reading, these words from Zephaniah. It's the same point. The Lord is in your midst. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. God is close. So take those words. Take, take your tornado moment. Whatever it was, some time in your chapter in your life, which was terrible. I hope it's in the past, but there's a lot of people here, probably a few, it's present. Something really terrible is going on, and it is sapping your spirit. It is beating you up. It's wearing you down. Take that and connect it with these words. The Lord is in your midst, so don't be afraid, and don't be discouraged, because God is close. 
I think the people who absolutely embrace those words and Paul's rejoice always words, they survive the tornadoes of life. They don't lose hope. Last week, there was a, uh, in Texas, there was this um, story in the news about this uh, couple who, uh, there was this police were called to this kind of a domestic dispute. It wasn't in their home. It was uh, out in front, I think it was in front of a liquor store. It was out in the street. And it was three people. If I got the facts right, it was three people involved. It was this guy and his mistress, and then the wife. I don't know if the wife confronted the two of them, but there's this, there is this confrontation to the point where cops were called because it was getting bad. This police officer arrives to try to resolve it. The guy's got a gun, and he shoots and kills the cop. At the funeral, uh, the daughter of this police officer spoke. She gave a eulogy. Listen to part of what she said. Her name is Shelby, Shelby Houston. What she said kind of stunned the mourners. She said, I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I've heard all the stories but I always had this hard time with how the suspect was dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always acted, oh, my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their terrible actions being a reflection of just that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me. But as it has happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. While I feel anger and sadness and grief and confusion, and part of me wishes I could hate the man who killed my father, I can't get my heart to hate him. All I can do is find myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. My prayer is that someday I get to spend time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him or hate him, but simply to tell him about Jesus. Her name is Shelby Houston. You should Google this eulogy. It's about eight minutes long. <laughs> so watch the news and then watch this eulogy when you get a minute. Watch the eulogy with your family. It's not to be believed. You know, her voice throughout the whole eight minutes, her voice is cracking. Her heart is broken. But she speaks like these almost unimaginable words. How in a moment like that are you having even the, the, the slightest sympathy for the guy that took your father's life? I don't really know. But I also, I do know, I'm not there. 
This rejoice always thing, like despite what's going on in your life, still have hope. I think that comes when you are seriously, radically connected to Jesus. And when we are, like the kid in this that I just told you about, those words happen. Those emotions happen. I just think she's very hardcore. I think she's seriously connected to Christ. And I don't know, if you hear those words and you're like, "Uh, okay, you know, that's nice, but it wouldn't be me. I don't think we should be comfortable with that. I hear those words and I go, that wouldn't be me. But I'm not comfortable with that. I I can't be okay with that. Because that's not the way Jesus was. And you hear from these people, we do, periodically. And they act in these totally Christ-like ways. Because I just think they have committed themselves to him in ways that most of us haven't. Maybe it's this. Maybe being here isn't enough. And listen, you all being here is way more than most. I know. Of course I know. Most aren't here on Sundays. You are. But maybe that's not enough. Because I suspect I'm not the only one in this big church who is saying, oh, I, don't, I just don't know if I could be thinking the way that 18-year-old daughter of the cop is thinking. But I want to be like that. Here's another reason why we should go to church. This is reason 275. Somebody says, you know what? When you go to school tomorrow, you go to work tomorrow, you can tell them, yeah, we had this really nice Christmas light, tree lighting after mass. And then maybe at work, somebody will say, oh, what's your, what's your parish? And you tell them. And then maybe they'll say, oh, actually, you go to church? You, I didn't know you went to church. And you go, yeah, I do. And then there'll be this little silence at the, you know, the computer terminal, wherever you are. And then maybe they'll say, why do you go to church? I kind of checked out a couple of years ago. It wasn't a moment. I just drifted away. But like, I don't go at all anymore. I'm intrigued. Why do you still go? Well, here's 275. I want to be forgiving. Tell them about that girl. And say, like, on some level, in some way, I want to I see life through her lens. I want my heart to operate the way that kid's heart operates, because that's the way to be. And I know I'm not there. But when I'm here, I get closer to being that way. So it is hardcore, and it's not easy. And maybe more than being here on Sunday is needed to get to where she is, to where we actually can maybe always rejoice. Maybe it's not crazy Bible talk. And if you listen to this girl, she's not just a, you know, she's not in la-la land. She's not like this Jesus freak who's just, you know, not even in reality. Her heart is crushed. But she's speaking these words, and she's meaning them. So maybe we just have to be as hardcore as she. We got two weeks to go. How can we step it up? 
How can we become more hardcore in getting to know him? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Well, if that girl can, how can we not? 